Brethren, it's a great and glorious sight to see all these priesthood holders gathered here in this historic tabernacle and to realize that thousands and thousands have gathered in other buildings throughout the Church, men who hold the priesthood of God with power and authority to act in His name. All of us want to be actively engaged in helping to build the kingdom of God and be prepared to answer the clarion call of our President, Spencer W. Kimball, a prophet of God through whom the Lord speaks and directs His work here upon the earth. Whenever I stand before a body of priesthood holders, I feel very have a very heavy responsibility and do hope and humbly pray that the Spirit and blessings of the Lord will attend us and guide our thinking while I speak to you. I often wonder if we really realize what a great privilege and blessing it is to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ and to hold the priesthood of God and to know that we are the only people in the whole world that have this great blessing and privilege. We must never forget that this privilege carries with it a heavy responsibility which must be assumed by every one of us, from President Kimball to the last deacon ordained in the Church. Let us never weaken or forget that we have been called by the Lord. He expects all of us to honor the priesthood and magnify our calling. We have heard and will hear, are hearing, much about the evils in the world today. They are real and very serious. In fact, they have almost engulfed the world. I am sure many of you are tired of hearing about it, as I am, and feel that we are listening to a broken record. Let me read some excerpts from a talk given by Dr. John A. Howard, president of the Rockford College in Rockford, Illinois, as he spoke to the graduates of Brigham Young University last June. He referred to the problems of the, and sacrifices of our, made by our early pioneers who crossed the plain to the Great Salt Lake Valley, and then he said, the work that faces your generation is no less arduous. The deserts you must bring to blossom are no less arid. But your mission may demand even more of you, for unlike the early pioneers this state of this state, you are confronted by a wilderness which is subtle and fluid and elusive. Indeed, the wilderness which you must conquer is, a disguise, is disguised as a civilization as a civilization, so that there is a double necessity to unmask the deceit, to distinguish between what is authentic and what is counterfeit, and to labor to support the one and oppose the other. The moral depravity which appears on television is rivaled by the moral tone of, camp of campus, where cohabitation is commonplace and where the use of illegal drugs doesn't even raise an eyebrow anymore. The swelling tide of crime is matched by the deluge of dishonesty, and I think that word is adequate and accurate. The tide of crime is matched by the deluge of dishonesty on the parts of politicians who promise what they know they cannot deliver and who try to deceive the people into believing that projects cannot always be paid for out of somebody else's pocket. It may be difficult for your generation to conceive what this society was, was like a scant ten years ago. Gutter language was almost unknown on public platform and in plays and movies. Coeducational dormitories were unthinkable in anywhere in this country. Most people had no worry walking out alone late at night in the, in the city streets. Salacious literature was no pub, not publicly available on the newsstands or bodyguards available in the lobby of the local motel. Nor was salacious literature available in the bookstores publicly. He also said, I believe there is no single large group of your generation in the United States as consistently trained in its religious obligations, as ready to work long hours and make sacrifices for its principles, and as well versed in the dignity of self-reliance as you are. If that estimate is correct, you are greatly blessed and highly privileged." Unquote. Now, this is a great compliment from Brigham Young University. Remember that it is given by a non-member of the Church who is resident, president of another university and is acquainted with the conditions in the world today and is qualified to speak on this subject. He has clearly pointed out what the responsibilities of the BYU are 
After reading his talk, I immediately asked myself, what has the Brigham Young University got that put, puts it in such a strong position? I should like to suggest three or four reasons for the university being what it is. First, it was established under the direction of the priesthood of God and continues to function under the influence of that priesthood, with the president and most of the faculty being members made up of men and women who have strong testimonies of the gospel, who know who they are, where they came from, and why they are here, and who are prepared and anxious to teach the principles of the restored gospel by precept and example. Second, most students who attend the university have been taught these same principles in their homes <clears throat> and to understand that they are spirit children of God and how they can prepare themselves to go back into his presence. Third, through the church organizations and the example of the officers and teachers, the youth receive great strength as they are growing up, and they benefit greatly as they participate as officers and teachers and members of the branches on the, and stakes on the university campus. Fourth, the great strength of the returned missionaries with their strong testimonies and experiences contributes much to the religious atmosphere on the campus. Before going farther, I should like to take this opportunity to sound what I think to be a most important warning, and that is that neither the university nor the church nor we as individuals adopt the attitude that we have arrived, that we are saved, that we need not repent, that we need not continue to try to improve and live more closely and completely the teachings of the gospel. If what Dr. Howard said about the responsibility of the BYU students is true, and it is, it applies even more to the Church, its officers, and its members. As mentioned before, this is the Church of Jesus Christ, the only Church led by and holding the priesthood of God, and it has <clears throat> been given the charge to teach the gospel to all people, to prepare them for the second coming of Christ. This can be done only as we honor the priesthood of God and magnify the office and calling which has been given to us individually. It is evident that we must put forth greater effort as a Church, as individuals, if we are to withstand the evils of the world. The First Presidency and General Authorities are greatly concerned about the fact that evil and temptation are reaching into the Church and infecting the lives of many of our youth and even adult members. It nearly breaks our hearts to see how many and how seriously they are being affected. We realize that the worth of a soul is great in the sight of the Lord, and we want to do all in our power through love and kindness and warning to help strengthen and guide all members in the paths of truth and righteousness. We feel as Nephi did when he said, Iniquity had, become, had come upon the Nephites, and his heart was swollen with sorrow within his breast, and he did exclaim in the agony of his soul, our concern of every family, every father, every adult, and every priesthood holder should be how can we best guard and protect ourselves and our children and others against the evils of the world. Let me refer to a sort of and sort of paraphrase the parable, The Defective Battery, written by Elder James E. Talmage. He said that in order to carry out a certain laboratory experience, experiment, he needed a powerful primary electric current. He asked his assistant to prepare a battery consisting of a dozen cells of simple types. His assistant followed the usual procedure. He prepared twelve jars containing acid solution in which were immersed a pair of plates, one of carbon and one of zinc. The cells were then connected in series. This should result in the series giving out strength equal to the total force. It was discovered, however, that he had not given sufficient attention to details, those seeming trifles that make or mar perfection. Elder Talmadge said that he was disappointed when he tried to use the battery because it was not functioning as it should, and he inspected it. As he inspected it, he found the cells were not all working alike. Some of them were intensively active and the liquid seemed to be like boiling water because the escaping gases 
because of the escaping gases. And its current was very weak. The energy from it was practically used up in overcoming its own internal resistance. And it had no power. He took the battery apart and made an individual examination of each cell. The first eight cells proved to be in good condition. The ninth, however, was seriously at fault. This cell was set aside, <clears throat> and the others tested and found to be good. It was plain to see that the number nine cell was the cause of all the trouble. It was the one, too, that had been fuming and fussing more than the others. Leaving it out, he hooked up the other eleven and found them to form a good, strong current, ample to operate an electric receiver or to fire a blast on the other opposite side of the globe. Later, he began to inspect the rejected unit and found that it had short-circuited itself through its foaming and fuming. The acid had destroyed the insulation of some parts, and the current was wholly used up in destructive corrosion within the jar. It had violated the law of right action. It had corrupted itself in its defective state. It was not only worthless as a working unit, but an unproductive member in a community of cells. It was worse than worthless in that it caused an effective resistance in the operation of the other clean and serviceable units. He did not destroy the unit, however. He thought there was a possibility of restoring it some usefulness. He searched its innermost parts and with knife and file removed the corroded crustment. He baptized it in his cleansing bath and set, it, and set it up again and tried it out. Gradually it developed energy until it came to work almost as well as the other cells. However, he continued to watch the cell with special care, not trusting it as fully as he had before it had defiled itself. Now, Elder Talmadge says this is an actual experience, but he called it a parable and said how much we are like Voltaic cell. There are men who are loud and demonstrative, even offensive, in their abnormal activity. Yet what do they accomplish in effective labor? Their energy is wholly consumed in overcoming the internal resistance of their defective selves. There are others who do but sleep and dream. They are slothful, dormant, and, as judged by the standard of utility, dead. There are men who labor so quietly as to scarcely reveal the fact that they are hard at work. Through their earnest devotion, they greatly influence the lives of those with whom they associate. The unclean cell, however, was much like the sinner. Unfitness was the di direct effect of internal disorder, self-corruption. <clears throat> Such a defection in men we call sin, which is essentially the breaking of the law. They, in association with others who are clean and able and willing, are an obstruction to the current, and the efficiency of the whole is lessened, if not entirely neutralized, by a single defective unit. <clears throat> sure, no holder of the priesthood would choose to be the defective cell, holding up the work of the Lord, all of us would like to live so that the Lord would be happy with our devotion and activity. And we would like <coughs> pardon me, we would like to feel that we are helping to build the kingdom of God. To do this, it is necessary that we be alert and do all in our power to thwart the evil designs of Satan and his cohorts. And especially in times of prosperity, when the people are inclined to turn away from the teaching of the Lord. Members of the Church today are probably in a better financial position than ever before. The Church is growing rapidly and being more generally accepted in the world than ever before. There seems to be a greater feeling of security. All of this has a tendency to cause us to fall away from the Church because we set our minds too much upon the things of this world. Nephi warned his people against the onslaught of the temptations of Satan in these words, For behold, at that day shall he rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. And others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security, that they will say, All is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus 
the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Let us consider three things which today particularly are leading people away. First, failure to keep the Sabbath day holy. Second, breaking the word of wisdom. Third, unchastity. There are many others. The Sabbath day seems to have become a day of recreation. Professional sports keep thousands of people at home with their television sets on or traveling to places where the games are played, and thousands of participants participate as players or spectators. And in their affluence, people own boats, motorcycles, campers, fishing gear, and other sports equipment, and tend to feel it is a waste not to use them to their full advantage on weekends, including Sunday. Seeking worldly pleasures leads many of our youth into forbidden paths, where they begin to experiment with alcohol, tobacco, and drugs, all of which become habit-forming, and eventually they are engulfed in many other evils related to these things. <clears throat> the influence of television, particularly, is most damaging as alcohol, tobacco, and sex are portrayed as a contributing to popularity and making one a part of the M group. Pornography abounds, and its ill effects are evident on every side. You know what they are. I will simply say that neither adult nor youth can see or listen to or communicate in pornography without becoming contaminated and endangering the moral fiber of the community. The sex pervert, the rapist, the thief have become what they are because of what has been fed into their minds which in turn has prompted the deeds they perform. Immorality and unchastity are so common today that our youth, seeing many types of perversions, perversions on television and in movies, are feeling that these are accepted modes of living. I cannot emphasize too strongly the importance of keeping ourselves clean and pure and chaste in order to be worthy to bear this holy priesthood and to prepare ourselves and our families for eternal life. We have been given the Family Home Evening Program as one means of combating evil and strengthening our youth, where we can teach our children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. We must always remember that though we are in the world, we must not be part of it. We just cannot follow the ways of the world. We must dare to be different. We must not be influenced by those who would call us peculiar. The Lord said to the children of Israel, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, my brethren, I would like to bear my testimony to you, bear witness that I know as I know I stand here, that God is a personal living God in whose image we were formed, and is interested in us and wants us to succeed. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and that he has given us the way we should live and act as priesthood holders which we are. And he and his son Jesus Christ came to this earth and restored the gospel in its fullness. We are so fortunate to have that gospel, to understand who we are and why we are here and how we can get back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And he expects every boy to so live all the time to be an example for good. And I appeal to every man and every boy within the sound of my voice this night to be just what I have recommended he should be, make a personal evaluation and to determine within himself and in his heart to so live as to please the Lord and wherever he is to make his influence felt for good. If each of us will do this, we will be welcomed back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. May we meet there. When we have finished our work here, I humbly pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. A successful football coach recently described his best player as an athlete possessing an extra special dimension. Besides being a great team man, I was told he performs well for himself. 
He possesses all of the necessary physical and mental ingredients for success. He has personal pride and a good self-image. He has the bearing and self-conduct patterns that prompt his fellow team members and friends to say, He's well-balanced. He knows where he is going and how to get there. Proper self-management is a great virtue, which can lead to personal pride. Personal pride is a great motivator. It is a virtue to understand who we are and to conduct ourselves accordingly. To be created in God's image is a tremendous blessing with accompanying choice responsibilities. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Appropriate personal pride prohibits shabby performance. Proper self-image is a basic ingredient of pride in oneself. It is necessary if individual discipline is to be purposeful and effective. May I suggest a few thoughts for our consideration in the basic areas of self-management? Generally, the cover or jacket of a book is designed to sell what is inside. We will not have to die to be judged by the cover of the Book of Life. To those who would say, It's what you really are inside that counts, not the length of the hair or the beard. I would say if this is true, and I agree it is, why run the risk of looking like something you're not? (laughs) In working with others in regard to personal appearance, change can usually be brought about more quickly by courteously appealing to pride, impression, and image. Self-image is often enhanced by the clothing worn. Appropriate, modest, flattering, and comfortable apparel helps a person feel good about himself. To be overdressed or immodestly dressed may create wrong impressions and improper identification. Improper clothing may also lead to wrong actions. I have always had a special amount of admiration and respect for the blind friends who, even though they were unable to see themselves or others, yet they appear neat, well-dressed, and well-groomed. The individual or someone in that person's life is trying to help the blind person feel good about himself. We do ourselves and others a great injustice when we appear to be what we are not. Reasonable questions to ask oneself could well be, Can I be proud of my appearance? Do my clothes properly introduce me? What better example of proper personal appearance can we have than that glorious introduction shared with us by the Prophet Joseph Smith when he declared, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description. Taking the time to prepare oneself to look one's best for all occasions is grooming at its best. I am reminded of the mother who said, It began to annoy me that the children would say, Where are you going, Mom? Whenever I took time out to tend my hair, apply a little lipstick, or slip into a clean dress. Didn't I have the right to dress up at home? Then I started to realize how seldom I actually did dress up just to stay home and do housework. In fact, I rarely changed from my working clothes except when I ran to shop or visit. I had made myself too busy to bother with good grooming except for special occasions, for visiting, for going to church. No wonder the children got confused at the rare times I made myself more presentable for no apparent reason at all. One of life's eternal pursuits is learning to know oneself. Dr. Thomas Harris shares this worthy thought with us. Most people never fulfill their human promise and potential because they remain perpetually helpless children 
overwhelmed by a sense of inferiority. The feeling of being okay does not imply that the person has risen above all his faults and emotional problems. It merely implies that he refuses to be paralyzed by them. He is determined to accept himself as he is, but also to assume more and more control of his life. Getting better acquainted with oneself and realizing God has given to every person gifts and talents is a worthy challenge. For there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To one is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. To be aware of one's limitations and potentials on a continuing basis will help in improved self-esteem. We need to be constantly aware of the fact that we are children of God. He knows us. He hears us. He loves us. Proper self-image will help us keep our habits, lives, and souls directed in happy paths. How proud we should be in the knowledge that we have God-like attributes. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, It's difficult to make a man miserable while he feels he is worthy of himself and claims kindred to the great God who made him. Our obligation is to avoid self-pity, self-judgment, and self-indulgence. If we properly understand our relationship to God— and his to us, we will not have moments, days, or lives spent in wondering, what have I done to deserve this? What does God have against me? Or why wasn't I born with the talents of my friends? There needs to be a willingness and ability on the part of all of us to properly relate to others in families, neighborhoods, and organization. Courtesy and self-respect are necessary ingredients. We need the humble approach in dealing with others. Proper self-management will permit us to be a team member first, a coach, captain, or superstar second. In this relationship and way of life, the truth, if you're not one, you're not mine, takes on new significance. Another important part of meaningful self-management is self-discipline, and the only discipline that really works is self-discipline. What can give greater satisfaction in life than mastery and self-conduct? Good health habits, integrity, bearing, mannerisms, conversation, and self-control can be powerful assets in one's personal balance sheet. These traits outwardly reflect the views of the management. Integrity within oneself makes it possible for honesty with God, family, and all other daily associates. A person who has integrity within himself will also have it in relationship with all others. A person walks uprightly only when he is moving in the right direction. We need to know where we are going at all times and under all conditions. One avoids the appearance of evil as he trods paths that lead up and on rather than down and out. Being anxiously engaged in worthy causes and seeking first the kingdom of God are eternal and external evidences of proper self-management and a proper application of personal resources. To teach self-discipline, the emphasis should be on self-respect and esteem rather than the use of ridicule, embarrassment, and tears for conduct improvement tools. One of the greatest tragedies that can come in human life is the destruction of self-respect. This destruction is often self-inflicted. Elevated expressions of human feelings, example, and courtesy build self-respect. People are lifted when they are treated as if they already were what they could be. 
It is my experience that most thinking people respond better to friendly persuasion than to threats or abuse. Even personal health habits are generally improved by proper emphasis on temporal and eternal values rather than on condemnation and disgust. Overweight people should be encouraged concerning appearance and health advantage of appropriate diet and trimness. Most will respond to honest appreciation expressed for what has been done or honestly attempted rather than caustic slurs. Often self-discipline in personal health is weak or missing because we allow ourselves to become lost in revenge or spite attitudes. Recently, I was talking to a young man on drugs. To the question, why do you use drugs, he responded with, to get even with my mom. From an attractive wife and young mother presently caught up in the habit of drinking cocktails, to my query, why are you involved in the use of alcohol, she said, that father-in-law of mine isn't going to tell me what to do. If there are good reasons to be on drugs and alcohol, and at the present time I don't know of any, there must be better reasons than those offered by these two friends. God and men glory in intelligent self-management. As important to our own self-image and general conduct as appropriate dress, grooming and hair standards, our moderation of voice, use of worthy language, good manners, respect for others' rights, and courtesy. In any community or personal situation, it is refreshing and uplifting to see men and women who think, speak, and act with propriety. Good manners are necessary for the decency and peace of community living and should be of grave concern to all. Yet we hear and read less about their cultivation than we do about dieting and daily dozens to enhance our personal acceptance and development. Courtesy is at its best when it is least obvious. Courtesy is not the invention of a past generation. Rather, it is but a long-standing manner of life. We need to be reminded of the fact that Moses did more than bring down the Ten Commandments from the Mount. He, in unmistakable terms, prescribed the conduct of a gentleman, civility to friends and strangers, respect for the blind, the deaf, the aged, the weary, the unsuspecting, and the abstention from tail-bearing. Courtesy is not unusual conduct to be reserved for a special circle of friends or circumstances. It is not a veneer to be put on for social special occasions or people. It is a way of life of tremendous significance, whether it be in the home, in the office, or on the highway. It cushions the unexpected and eases our jolts wonderfully. We cannot justify or condone discourtesy regardless of friendship or situation. Our best manners learned and used in the home will appropriately surface in our association with all men. Being on time to appointments and meetings is a phase of self-discipline and an evidence of self-respect. Punctuality is a courteous compliment the intelligent person pays to his associates. Punctuality, or the lack thereof, oftentimes is the only introduction one will ever have to new groups and friends. Serenity and poise are not the companions of those who lack the courtesy and judgment to be on time. He is well-disciplined who develops patience in his dealings with his fellow men. In conversation, he is considerate and knows how to listen. A courteous conversationalist is not a boaster, a babbler, or a bore. Wise is the man who says what needs to be said, but not all that could be said. My hope and prayer today is that we will look to ourselves with new responsibility, new self-appreciation, higher self-image, and greater self-respect. We are children of God. We do possess God-given attributes.
We do have the opportunity and the obligation to learn to be leaders. Let us so live that it may be said of us. He's well balanced. He knows where he's going and how to get there. He is a good manager of himself. By doing this, it will be possible to better serve in the kingdom and have a greater appreciation for the chilling and thrilling declaration, as man now is, God once was, as God now is, man may become. This is what proper self-management is all about. I leave you these thoughts and my testimony in the name of him, the perfect example, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beloved brethren, I should like to say a few words to you, if I may. <clears throat> what an opportunity it is to meet together under these auspices. 230,000 of us, possibly more. We welcome you again this night and ask the Lord to bless us while we're thus convened. Two or three matters I would like to bring to your attention. We have written a letter to all the stake presidencies in the western United States saying that in the past the primary children's medical center received substantial financial support through the annual Penny Parade. These funds enabled the hospital to admit children in need of assistance without regard to race, creed, religion, or ability to pay. Since this source of support is no longer available, the hospital has organized a children's fund which will be conducting a penny-by-the-inch fund drive in the month of February 1977. All funds received will be used to continue charity services. We think the program is worthy of your support. And uh, with the Relief Society, I wish to call to your attention the, on all the brethren of the priesthood another matter deserving your attention and support. The General Presidency of the Relief Society more than a year ago proposed to the First Presidency in the Twelve the erection of a monument to the women of the Church. In view of the fact that the Prophet Joseph organized the Relief Society in Nauvoo on March 17, 1842, it was felt that this monument should stand in Nauvoo. Presidency in the Twelve, after consideration, felt to endorse this proposal with the understanding that the project would be funded primarily through the voluntary contributions of the women of the Church. Work on the monument has been going forward and contributions are being received. We earnestly ask that stake presidents and bishops give their endorsement to this undertaking and encourage their respective Relief Society presidents in their efforts to secure the needed contributions. We're confident that with support from you, brethren, these funds can be gathered without doing any injury to anyone. If many contribute, the individual amount need not be large. We would hope also that some of the brethren might feel inclined to make a contribution to this worthy project. The General Relief Society presidents are anxious to conclude the fund drive before March 17th of next year with, this, with their anniversary date. Your effort, efforts in this direction will be greatly appreciated. Each sister could make to the Relief Society a small contribution she would then feel a part of it. Another matter. We hope that you who teach in the various organizations, whether in the campuses or in our chapels, will always teach the orthodox truth. 
We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of a past generation, such, for instance, as the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. Now, just a few words to you young men. Have you ever imagined yourself to be the prophet Joseph Smith when he was 14 and received his glorious vision? Or David when he was playing his harp for King Saul? Or Joseph who had dreams and visions and who saw in dream how his father and mother and all his brothers and their families would bow down to him? Have you ever thought of yourself as being Nephi who under very difficult circumstances defied his rebellious brothers and went into the city of Jerusalem and single-handed obtained the plates which were vital to the posterity of Lehi and his families. Have you ever thought of yourself as being the young Nephi who gave leadership in large measure to his older brothers and to his father's family? Can you think of yourself as being Nephi who heard his father excitedly call attention to something he had found just outside the door of his tent. It was a round ball, the answer to the message received by his father Lehi using, uh, during the night when visited by the Lord who told him to resume his journey into the wilderness on the morrow. There must have been great excitement in your family when the ball was shown to them. You and they found it to be a round ball of curious workmanship and made of fine brass, and none of you had ever seen anything like it before. It had two spindles or pointers which were designed to indicate the direction of the movement of the party as they went forward. For no reason that you could figure out, one of the spindles pointed a specific direction which was identified by your father as the direction that you should go into the wilderness. And what would you further think if your father said that the voice of the Lord had spoken unto him, saying, Look upon the ball, and behold the things which are written, that when he beheld the things which were written upon the ball, he feared and trembled exceedingly. And your other brethren and associates and their wives also feared and trembled, apparently realizing that it was something out of this world. And what if you would be greatly interested and would observe very carefully the workings of this unusual ball, and you noted that it worked according to the faith and diligence and heed which were given unto them as to the way they should go. What would you think if, upon closer examination, you would note that there were writings on the ball, and that they were plain to be read, and that they went farther than pointing directions. They explained the ways of the Lord, and the instructions were changed from time to time as additional demands were made of the Lord, and this according to the faith and diligence which the family gave to it. What would be your feelings if you were directed by the ball or Leahona? as it was come, came to be called, to climb into the top of the mountains, and uh, the directions were given and written on the ball. Never had you seen anything like it, for it was curious workmanship, and the instructions to which they pointed were invariable, always the same direction, but the writings were changed from time to time according to need. What would you further think concerning this curious ball if it changed from time to time as directions needed? Imagine yourself a younger brother such as Nephi, but being more spiritual than the older brethren. You were very careful to follow the directions as they were given on the ball. Suppose that you found that the directions on the ball led the family to more fertile fields and parts of the wilderness, which where supplies could be had. Suppose that in your long travels you finally ran out of food 
and the children were crying for food, and that as you, with your specially fine steel bow and arrow, you broke the bow in your vigorous handling. And then suppose your brethren came to you very critical because their bows were of wood, and they were broken, limiting the opportunity to kill the wild animals for food for the family. Suppose you then were obliged to sit in the camp and listen to your older brothers murmur exceedingly because of their sufferings and their afflictions in the wilderness and with definite criticisms of their father and yourself and even the Lord for having led them into this dry wilderness. The steel springs of the bows of your brothers had lost their strength and food was getting very scarce. Suppose in these difficult hours of criticism and complaint of your brothers that you had made a bow and used a straight stick for an arrow and that you had armed yourself with your new bow and arrow and with stones and a sling. And when you asked your father where you should go, in what direction to find meat, and then you felt the inspiration of the faithfulness of your beloved father. Suppose that even your father had begun to murmur against the Lord for leaving the family in these separate straits, desperate straits. How would you feel to know that your father as well as your brothers were chastised by the voice of the Lord for their lack of faith and humility? Can you imagine yourself with your older brothers and your father and all the family looking intently at the ball and its pointers to see what it would say when you were in when you were all instructed by the voice of the Lord to follow the instructions of the ball. Can you imagine all your brothers and members of the family crowding around the ball to watch it work? Then all at once you noticed the pointers or spindles moved around and uh, made error, showed an error. Would you not tremble as you were reminded again with the whole family? that the pointers of the ball would work according to the faith and diligence. And then if you went with your brothers and finally convinced them and you went into the great ocean, and then after a short travel, the, the spindles wouldn't work anymore, and the ship turned around and went backwards, and... Uh, because of the lack of faith of the brothers who were very rude and cruel and who picked up your self and bound your hand and foot till your arms and your ankles ached. What would you think of all those things? And then you realized and you knew that if they would just live the word of the Lord and be faithful, that they that the spindles would work. What would you think then if finally, when the angel came and protected you and released you from this bondage, you were cleared, and the brethren, having repented to some degree, went on, and uh, the spindles worked well, and the, you went on to your destination. We hear again of the Baal or compass or Leona, which is interpreted to mean a compass which the Lord had prepared and which could not be worked by any man, but it was prepared especially to show unto your father the course which they should travel in the wilderness. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of a ball, each one of you, so that whenever you were in error, it would point the way and it would write messages to you. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of a ball, each one of you, so that you would always know when you were in error or in the wrong way? That, my young brethren, you all have. The Lord gave to every boy, every man, every person, a conscience which tells him every time he starts to go on the wrong path. 
He is always told if he is listening. But people can, of course, become so used to hearing the messages that they ignore them until finally they do not register anymore. You must realize that you have evolved something like the compass, like the Leohona, in your own system. Every child is given it. When he's eight years of age, he knows good from evil, if his parents have been teaching him well. If he ignores the, the ball that he has in his own makeup, he eventually may not have it whispering to him again. But if we remember that every one of us has the thing that will direct him aright, his ship will not get on the wrong course, and uh, suffering will not happen, and bows will not break, and uh, families will not cry for food. If we listen to the dictates of our own Leona, which we call the conscience. Brethren, this has been a glorious evening for us here. To all meet together, 230,000 of us perhaps, maybe more. We have just now received another telegram from uh, Melbourne, Australia which says they're receiving the conference very well. So this is the third corner of the world. Perhaps we may get another which will get the four corner, fourth corner of the world. At any rate, brethren, we've had some wonderful messages here tonight. And may the Lord bless us that we will ponder them and think them through and receive them into our souls that we may carry on this great work that the Lord has given to us. The Lord does live. The Savior of the world does live. They have a program for us. They have made it known to us. If our Leonas don't work, if we live so that they cannot be depended upon, we may not understand fully all the things the Lord tells us to do. But my faith and prayer is that we will, and that we will give serious consideration to all the things that we're hearing in this conference and from the brethren who lead us. May the Lord bless us, brethren. May peace be with us and joy and comfort. And I offer this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.